BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the world's most powerful fitness and health coach. Whoop isn't just another fitness wearable. It's designed to provide personalized and actionable data based on your body. That personalized component is really what drew me to it. I hadn't seen that kind of thing offered before. Wake up each morning with a personalized recovery score based on the quantity and quality of your sleep, your heart rate variability, respiratory rate, and other critical vital signs. Whoop then coaches you through your day and provides recommendations on how hard you should push yourself based on your recovery. I seriously love being able to check my recovery score every day. I'm super competitive with it. I am really loving being able to check each day what my recovery score is and making sure that I'm truly staying on top of my health. I do so well with data and numbers and seeing visible results of hard work really keeps me motivated. Again, the fact that this is all personalized just makes it so much better. I have peace of mind knowing that I'm not compared to what works for someone else, as that doesn't mean it will always work for me, right? Whoop also just released their all-new 4.0, which is 33% smaller and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. Go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use code WIT at checkout to save 15% today. WIT to save 15% today. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me. Life-changing moments, life-changing people. Because on With Wit, very little is off limits. One of the many things I am grateful for when it comes to this podcast is the platform it has become for discussing mental health. I've had the privilege of talking with so many amazing professionals on various mental health topics, which have really greatly influenced me in my journey and how I view and adjust and adhere to my mental health. I really hope you've all been able to learn as much as I have. I never want anyone to feel alone in their struggles and I feel like ever since launching I Love My Baby But, I use this as a foundation and a platform to talk about all this stuff. And it's really what brings me my biggest joy. And I don't want anyone, like I said, to feel alone in their struggles due to any of the stigma still so prevalent with mental illness. My next guest is someone working towards fighting this very stigma. 
Sarah Fay, who's a PhD and MFA, is an activist and author of Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses. Her book calls for a new conversation about mental health diagnosis, one based on rigorous transparency. With exquisite detail and a precise presentation of facts, she digs up her own life at the root to finally ask, is a diagnosis a lifeline or a self-fulfilling prophecy? She writes for so many publications, including The New York Times, The Atlantic, Time, and The Paris Review. Additionally, she's the recipient of the Hopwood Award for Literature and grants and fellowships from Yaddo, the Mellon Foundation, and the McDowell Colony, among others. Currently, Sarah is on the faculty at Northwestern University and the founder of Pathological The Movement. This was an extremely moving conversation. I hope you thoroughly enjoy. Here is Sarah. I'm so excited to talk to you and to really discover and uncover all of these misdiagnoses that I don't think we're realizing are happening in our lives. And you have your new book, Pathological, which uncovers, you know, some misdiagnoses that you had in your life. And so I guess first, just to start it all off, what prompted you to write this book and to be the founder of this this movement, Pathological? I was, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I was saying earlier just how genuine you are and how great the podcast is. And it's just a pleasure to be here. So thank you so, so much. But I was diagnosed with six different mental disorders starting when I was 12. So I received a diagnosis of anorexia when I was 12 years old. Then in my 20s, I was told that I had generalized anxiety disorder, then major depressive disorder. In my 30s, I was told I had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and then obsessive compulsive disorder. And then finally, in my 40s, I was told that I had bipolar disorder. And so it was 30 years in the mental health system. And I had been getting one diagnosis after another, and I still wasn't getting better. I still wasn't well, and I didn't understand what was happening. And eventually I went to a new psychiatrist, my sister. I was in crisis at the time. I was suicidal and I was almost out of my medication. And I was, you know, out of, I didn't have a a psychiatrist at that time. And my sister swept in as anyone who's been through mental illness or knows someone who has the families or the heroes, my family is the hero of my book, no question. She swept in, found me a psychiatrist and I went to see him. We had the 30 minute consultation and I waited at the end for him to proclaim a diagnosis on me. And that's what had always happened. And to either say, yes, you have bipolar disorder or no, let me give you a new disorder. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And my whole world changed. I mean, this was after 30 years of getting one diagnosis after another. It just made me wonder, what are all these diagnoses I've been getting? And where do they come from? Who invented them? How do we have them? I knew nothing about them, yet I'd taken them on as my identity. And so I started researching and I wanted to find out everything I could about mental health diagnoses, their history, everything. And that's when I started writing the book the American health system is really based on diagnosing, right? And, you know, right. to be fair, that's what doctors are trained to do. And it's, it's noble in some ways, right? I mean, they want to they uh-huh. give us an answer and they want to give us a solution, usually meaning a medication. And psychiatry right. is like that as well. I think the difference is, or I know the difference is, and what I discovered, which I didn't know, 
was the fallibility of mental health diagnoses. So to give you an example, I'm seeing my general practitioner. Five of my six diagnoses actually came from my GP. So on an annual visit, I'm, I'm in his office. And after 15 minutes, you have attention deficit hyperactivity. Right, right. And is this the same doctor, by the way, that's diagnosing you each and every time? Or are these different? No, some were different. And so some doctors did change the diagnosis, but otherwise it was different Uh doctors. And, you know, so I'm in his office and just imagine down the hall, there's someone getting a diagnosis of diabetes. So the difference between physical illnesses and mental illnesses or mental disorders, as we know them, is that the doctor could pull out a blood test and say, see, this is how I know you have diabetes. Here's a normal range and you're out of that range. But there's no blood test. There's no x-ray. There's no scan for a mental health diagnosis. And I didn't ever think about that. I mean, I just never, it never crossed my mind. I thought, why haven't I been tested for this? And why did I, I mean, we have, sometimes there are surveys, but it was just really shocking to me that I had never considered, wait a second, these aren't provable beyond my self-reported symptoms and my clinician's opinion. It's so crazy. It's so crazy how we live. And I, especially like you said, in American culture, how we like, if we can't see something, then we kind of don't believe it's real. And then we like stop trusting it, you know? So I think for mental health, it's like, there, there's nothing like to actually visually see. That's why we can kind of sweep it under the rug so much. And it's just so so not the way to live. When the doctor said to you, you know, I don't really know, that must have caused so much self-reflection. It is. Like, yeah. yeah, just that, I mean, what you're saying is so true. These are invisible illnesses and they're very, very real. Mental illness is very real. I think one way to think about it is mental illness is the umbrella and underneath it are the diagnoses we use to try to get treatment to those who are falling under that umbrella. But what I realized, which I didn't know before, is that over-identifying with a disorder can be very detrimental. So a diagnosis can be a great relief. A very good friend of mine, when she was diagnosed with depression, it made sense to her. She felt relieved. Now I know why I feel the way I do. But for me, with each diagnosis, I over-identified with them. I became them. I saw it as my identity. So I wasn't just, I have bipolar disorder. I am bipolar. Like it was me. And I revolved my life around it. And I limited my life. So this is kind of the other side of it, which is that we actually are using diagnoses so much. So thinking about self-diagnosing on social media and TikTok therapists and so that diagnoses are actually everywhere, right? They're all, they're so a part of American culture and there's nothing wrong with that because it helps us get treatment. At the same time, they can't be verified. So we have to be really careful about, especially giving them to children and giving them to, you know, teenagers where they're in a phase where they might over-identify with them. Right, right. Where, like we were saying, it then becomes part of their identity. So so then what do you suggest? Like when someone is, first of all, how do you approach like the mental health care situation right now? Like what does that look like for you? Do you have only a limited people that you trust? Like do you only, like how do you, I don't know what, 
what is that what does that look like in your world right now so i still see the doctor the psychiatrist who said i don't know he's in the book he knows he's in my book he's fine with being in my book he's a really (laughs) wonderful brilliant brilliant psychiatrist he is very transparent with me about yeah these diagnoses that we use are very flawed and we have to be really careful and he's one of those people that the system really works for, meaning he knows so much and he's so well-trained that to have flawed diagnoses, it's not really a problem for him. You know, he's not coming into this the way the GPs that I saw came into it. So I didn't know this at the time, but actually fewer than a quarter of all medical schools offer more than 12 hours of training in psychiatry two GPs. Oh my goodness. So like 12 hours, that's like a season of Grey's Anatomy. Nothing. That is literally nothing. Like knowing what we know now about how important mental health is, that's unacceptable. And and that is, to add to that, they are doing 80% of the prescribing of antidepressants. They're also doing 50% Mm -hmm. of the prescribing of antipsychotics to children. And so we really have to think about that. Now, the good news is, I don't want to be this harbinger of doom where I see a lot of hope in that, is that that's a fixable situation. I mean, we can sort of go to medical schools or medical schools can look at this and change their curriculum. And we could get the people who need the training, the training that they need. The other part of that is I really encourage people that if they receive a diagnosis from a GP or a family doctor or a pediatrician, to either get a second opinion. That's a luxury though. I mean, not all of us, first of all, I know that right now getting in to see a child psychiatrist has a year long wait in some communities. So I understand that's not possible, but what you should be able to do is say to your GP, can you consult with a psychiatrist on your diagnosis? And they should do that. So that's something that we can do right now to just get that sort of second opinion in there. I never thought of that. And I never did it. I never got a second opinion. It's so interesting. You're right. Especially in so much of like the first half of our lives, we're only seeing a general practitioner. And so we're really just going with what they say. And it's not until I was like much more mature and in tune with my mental health and actually really needed to like talk about some stuff was I recommended to a psychiatrist. But Now, like this whole conversation really does make me question things a little bit, which I think like what you're saying, that's healthy. I think like there's a certain amount, the messaging you're trying to get out there is that there's a certain amount of healthy questioning that we should be enacting. You asked what my involvement in the mental health system is now. I still see, you know, as I said, the, I don't know, doctor, (laughs) he's Dr. R in the book because he's referred to as Dr. R. But I'm still on medication. I don't, I don't identify with a diagnosis. So I have a diagnosis on my medical record and he knows what it is, but I don't want to know because I would take any emotion that I was having, any behavior, any troubling thoughts, and I always attributed them to my diagnosis. And I never really learned what emotions were. I never learned how to manage my mind. And not having a diagnosis has allowed me to actually step back. So I still get treatment and I want everyone to get treatment. You know, that's a very, very necessary and very important, but the over identifying, you don't go, have to go as far as I did, which is not knowing my diagnosis, 
but not to over identify with it. And I don't think that, you know, as you said, like a healthy skepticism or a healthy questioning is really a good thing when it comes to mental health diagnoses, because there's a lot of misinformation out there about them. And I did not know any of this. So I believe they were biological. I believe they were caused by a chemical imbalance. And I believe that they were chronic, that I would have, I was told I would have each one for the rest of my life. And what I learned later, which shocks me to no end, is that they haven't been shown, no diagnosis has been shown to be biological. And the chemical imbalance theory was actually debunked 20 years ago. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And they haven't been shown to be chronic. <laughs> and so I was never given the hope of recovery until right. I stopped identifying with my diagnosis and learned, wait a second, I could actually recover from this? And so what's happened to me, I'm actually writing the sequel to Pathological Now, which is how I healed. And I have, I had a mental illness. I have completely recovered. And so I'm telling the story of how I did that. But part of it was not seeing myself as someone with a disorder, that it was just like, wow, I can actually recover from this. Now it's tricky, as you said, because I have been taking antidepressants and other medications for over a decade. And as many of your listeners know, you can't just go off a medication. And I tried to go off of mine and the withdrawal was terrible. And so I will never try again. And I do not encourage anyone to try without very good supervision. And I don't think there's any shame in being on medication. No, I don't either. And I've openly talked about that too, but it's really not something that a lot of people talk about at all. Yeah. I mean, I love this metaphor. So we often say, that mental illness is like diabetes, right? Depression is like Mm -hmm. diabetes or depression is just like cancer. And they're nothing, it's nothing like those. I mean, I I understand where that idea comes from, but um, someone I know described it as breaking a bone. Having a mental illness or having a depression is like breaking a bone. The bone can heal. And this is amazing, I didn't know this, but in physical medicine, when a bone heals, the point of the break becomes the strongest part of the bone. And I love that metaphor because I feel stronger for having been through what I went through. And I know that anyone with a mental illness or a mental disorder, we are some of the strongest people in the world. (laughs) What people don't, you know, we're often treated as weak, but that's not the case. But to extend the metaphor a little, everybody's going to heal a little differently. And some people are going to have a limb. It's not going to quite heal right. Some people are going to have chronic pain and have to take medication like me. And we adjust as needed. But I think telling ourselves that there's no chance of recovery is really doing us all a disservice. And we might not. You might have it for your life. And that's okay, too. And now a word from our sponsor. Earlier in the episode, I spoke about Whoop and how I love using their fitness wearable to help me stay on top of my health. A considerable part of that is through tracking my sleep. Sleep is seriously everything. It is one of the most important things you can do to improve recovery, boost your immune system, and make fitness improvements. I seriously feel it when I don't get my full eight. Honestly, I really need more than eight, but I'm lucky if I get seven. The sleep coach from Whoop analyzes sleep duration, quality, efficiency, and consistency every single night. It also provides ideal bed and wake times to help improve my deep sleep routine. 
Their all-new Whoop 4.0 comes with a brand new haptic alarm that uses gentle vibrations to wake you in a less jarring way than an audio alarm and minimizes disruptions for your partner or roommates. Decide the alarm mode you want in the sleep coach section of the app, exact time, when you've hit your sleep goal, or when you want to wake up in the green feeling recovered. Improving my sleep has become a huge priority. I went through the most prolonged period of not sleeping fully, and the toll it took was really, really awful. I'm excited to try out a couple of sleep hacks to continue to improve my sleep. Go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use code WIT at checkout to save 15% today. The other day, Timmy and I had a big family meeting to discuss our summer travel plans. We have to plan out Sunny's camp schedule and school schedule. If you are getting organized too, then you must check out TravelZoo. TravelZoo is a trusted source for top-rated travel deals and lifestyle experiences. Their team searches for the best experiences for their members while negotiating the best prices. I love traveling, but the prep for it can be kind of stressful, and I'm the one usually responsible for it. There are so many hotels and varying rates to look at, and if you don't have notes going, your head could start to spin. TravelZoo completely takes that away. They share their top accommodation recommendations, including feature hotels that are four-plus stars. What a dream. They share high-quality deals to top bucket list destinations like the Maldives, French Poly, Galapagos, South Africa, and so many more. I have never been to any of those places. Dying to go. Searching for the images alone makes me want to be there right now. But that's really the one thing I love about Travel Zoo. It inspires members to really get out to travel to destinations that might not be top of mind. Becoming a member is free and simple. Every Wednesday, you'll receive an email featuring their top 20, which features 20 of the best deals they currently have available. Visit www.travelzoo.com slash sign up to become a member. All right, now back to the chat. I actually love what you did about not knowing the labels because like I like you were saying, I think those labels can really limit us. And I think as human beings, like we're not just all the things that people say we are or even what we say about ourselves. Like we're just so much more complicated and interesting than that. How can we talk to our kids about these things in a way that they can understand? Speaking from my experience, I'm not a mental health professional. So I just always want to be clear about that. So nobody. Of course, of course. But my experience was so I'll give you an example. When I was 12, my parents were divorcing and I was going to a new high school. I was extremely Mm -hmm. sad and I was terrified. And I had a stomachache and I couldn't eat. I mean, I literally couldn't eat. I was just sick to my stomach all the time. I didn't yet. My, my mother, as she should have, my, the situation became extreme and I couldn't hold down food or water. And she rightly took me to the pediatrician. And once I was on the scale, my pediatrician said she has anorexia. And we didn't know what anorexia was. This was in the 1980s. So it was just not, we knew a little bit, but not, I certainly didn't at 12. But what I did was hearing that word, I then attached, okay, feeling sad, feeling terrified, feeling anything means a disorder. It means something's wrong. And what I wish someone had said to me is, okay, we have to look at this diagnosis and this might be true. Now, meanwhile, I wasn't counting calories at that time. I wasn't weighing myself and I didn't think I was fat. 
So the, the classic signs weren't there. My pediatrician wasn't coming from that perspective. He didn't have the training to know that. But even if he was right, let's just say, yes, I definitely had anorexia. If someone had said to me, this is partly because of what you're going through and what it's okay to feel the way you're feeling. Yeah. I mean, that is what without for me, any medical training, what I would have said. I mean, that's the hard part is like, how much do you know what is situational and how much do you know what is something that really lives inside of you? Exactly. And it's so interesting right now with the pandemic and the mental health crisis among teens in some ways, and I don't mean to belittle this, but if, if these teenagers didn't feel anxious or depressed after spending two years in their bedrooms at a pivotal time in their lives, I would worry about them. (laughs) Right. I would think that that there was the the numbness was at a, yeah, to the nth degree. Right. And so in some ways, and, and that doesn't mean some of them aren't in crisis and that doesn't mean it's tipped over in some degree and that they really need immediate treatment and care. And, and we aren't getting it to them. That seems very, very clear. But at the same time, if we can give to them, yes, what you're going through is okay, you know, and that it could be because of this pandemic and the situation you've been through. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I, uh, I have just started, I just started taking antidepressants about a year ago. My dad passed away in 2013 and a doctor immediately kind of wanted to put me on them. And I started to take them and I, it did, it just, something didn't feel right. It felt like I was just putting a bandaid on something. And then after a lot of time of just like kind of putting band-aids on things and pushing down emotions and not really seeking help, I finally decided to talk to a therapist who then forwarded me along to a psychiatrist. And I'm forcing myself like now to reflect on that conversation that I had and how she didn't put a diagnosis on me, but more said that she thought that medication could actually just really help me, you know, could help me get back to a place where I didn't have to live in such an an anxious mind anymore. And I think that that kind of approach is like is such a way to live. And, and now looking back on, like looking back on that conversation, it was so important that in then how I defined myself moving forward, like that I'm not someone that just like has to be on medication or I'm not that just like a depressed person or an anxious person. Like no one told me that I was those things. So yeah, I, I, it is so important. And it's, it's so sad that that was something that was put on you so many times, but also amazing that you're obviously using that experience to, to like reveal these kinds of scenarios and help ourselves like through this. You just brought tears to my eyes. Like that's so, such a beautiful story and what a wonderful therapist. And again, there's nothing wrong with, with having, you know, major depressive disorder or having that as your identity for your whole life. Of course, you know, we're not saying that, but what I love about that is she gave you the option and, but without one thing I'm very much against is pill shaming, you know, just that that is, that's just not helpful to anyone. Psychiatric medications have been incredibly helpful for me. And again, I don't know if I still need them. I don't know if I'm dependent on them, but I'm, you know, I'm willing to, I, I'm lucky that I have a very low side effect profile. So that's a real gift. And and I have that luxury, but you know, there's just no reason to make people 
people already feel bad enough. That's why they're seeking mental health treatment. We don't need to make them bad about make, anything. Of course. But also not attaching it to a diagnosis necessarily that maybe this drug and the pharmaceutical companies are going to love us. We're going to get like, like right. a sponsorship <laughs> right now. But, but that maybe, you know, we don't know how the drugs work that well and we don't know exactly their mechanism. And if they help people and this, you know, the risks are low, then, then let's open to that, I guess. For sure. A hundred percent. I'm with that. I want to get back into like what your mental health journey looks like now, just like how, how you focus on it, what you do for it. Writing the book was very important to me. When I found out everything I did, which is that mental health, health diagnoses can't be validated right by a, you know, external measure, which I probably should have known, but I would think most people don't, don't think about that. Um, well, I think you also get you get clouded by the power of doctors yes. and by the power of of their knowledge. So it's hard to question that. But I, I get it. And then the other part of it that you bring up is I am with people who might be listening that you're in so much pain. I was suffering mm-hmm. so badly. I just wanted an answer and I wanted right. relief. Right. So I was very right. my editor asked me, like, didn't you question after the fifth diagnosis? And, the, and I said, no, I wanted relief so badly. And I think that's how a lot of people come into the mental health system. But, you know, and again, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But when I wrote Pathological, I was, I was angry, you know, and, and the New York Times praised Pathological as being a fiery manifesto of a memoir. And I think that's really wonderful. I'm not as feisty, you know, I, know, I am still feisty, but I'm not as angry <laughs> as I was. I'm now more, I think where I am is just really at a place of, service. I just want to help people get the information, as much information to people as I can to be of service to this whole, you know, sort of mental health system that we're all, whether we're all really in, whether you're seeking treatment or not. I mean, if you buy a loofah to relax, you're kind of in the mental health system in some ways. But I think the other, where this goes to is, you know, how I healed Thomas Insel, who was former head of the National Institute for Mental Health and others have talked about what you need to heal from mental illness are three P's is what they're called, like the letter P. And they are people, place, and purpose. And I had all three. I mean, that's such a gift. And so I had my family just never gave up on me, even though I isolated and distanced myself and was very, very removed from them for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I had a place to recover. When I was in my 40s, I couldn't live independently anymore. And I lived with my mother. And I was very, very lucky that she, you know, let me do that. It was not easy for her. I mean, she, she was on suicide watch for five years. That's not... It's exhausting, you know, for a mother to go through. If I could give her those years back, I would. But, and then purpose, the book has really become my purpose. And then the public awareness campaign that I started as well. And now trying to make sure that people you know, know that it's possible to recover from a mental illness. It is possible. I'm not guaranteeing anything and no one can. And that's not a reason to feel bad if you don't or that something's wrong. It's not. We're all going to live differently. So I think that that's just been a huge part of my mental health care right now is being, you know, promoting the book and then also talking to people and hearing from people who've been through what I went through or their children are going through what I went through, which is they are on their fourth diagnosis or their 10th diagnosis. And they've been on many medications and why isn't this getting better? And I just so understand that. 
but on a very practical level, I mean, I have, and this is what I'm writing about in my new book is just how did I get well? And, and it's so many silly things. I mean, really, I want to know, <laughs> like I, this is, this is the minutia that I love to hear. <laughs> okay. So one is when I feel that weight of depression or my heart is just fluttering and I feel that kind of electric you know, sensation in my chest that is anxiety. That's way more troubling than I'm making either of those sound. I drink a glass of water. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but we're 60% water and it is amazing. Uh It will shift something. doesn't mean it goes away, but it does sort of stop something and it does bring me back. I just drink the whole glass, you know, I mean, I don't guzzle it or anything, but I drink the water and it does, I feel more restored. Yes. The other thing that's been really helpful for me is evolutionary psychiatry is fascinating to me and it has allowed me to come to terms with my mind and the way that it works. So what evolutionary psychiatry, I mean, we don't really know how our minds or the brain works. We're doing our best, but like, I mean, yeah. first of all, what is the <laughs> mind? Is so complicated. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, no. <laughs> and then the brain has billions of neurons or however many, I mean, you know, we have no idea really, but Evolutionary psychiatry really talks about how our brains are designed to keep us alive. That's it. (laughs) As far as it goes for Uh for your brain, it is no interest in our happiness, like at all. (laughs) It's just always, it's like fight or flight. Yeah. It's like always keep you safe, keep you safe. Like that's Mm -hmm. it. Danger. And, Mm -hmm. And I decided that I am one of those people who would have done very well in prehistoric times because my brain is on high alert all the time, Uh you know, and it's uh just like danger, danger, danger. And Uh I've come to understand it. And when I wake up in the morning, every morning, I make a list of all my thoughts. I don't censor them. I just go down the page, you know, of a spiral notebook and I just write them down and they are all inevitably, not all of them. Sometimes there's a a bright, bright light that seeps in, but they tend to be extremely negative. Like my favorites Uh are this isn't working. Like, what is this? It could be anything, you know? And, right. And, right. You know, things like I hate her and it'll be someone I've never met, you know, or whatever it is. <sighs> and I've just realized that's just my brain trying to protect me. It's just looking for danger and the negative everywhere. And I like that so much more than, you know, this is because of a chemical imbalance, which is, you know, they know is not true, but even now they think it's more, the brain is more like a circuit board. And that things are kind of off, you know, the wiring is off and and who knows, we haven't really proven anything, but I I like that so much more. It's not anything out of my control. I can just understand where my thoughts are coming from, where they're coming from. Yeah. I think that has that and like, and meditation for me has been really the most helpful thing. And me constantly telling myself that not all of my feelings or my thoughts are true. (laughs) Okay, and now an ad break. So I've touched on some of the reasons why I love using Whoop, but I really want to stress that it's not just for serious athletes. Being a mom, being a wife, an entrepreneur, it's hard work. And Whoop helps me track my daily activity outside of just the gym. I'll get credit for all the moving I do during the day, even if I don't immediately classify it as working out. Whoop is a wearable, but unlike other wearables, it's designed to help you optimize your performance based on your sleep, your daily recovery, and your activity habits. 
It tells you when you're primed for a big day and when you should really chill out a little. I love knowing when I'm ready to go, but I really appreciate it so much more when Whoop tells me to actually take a rest. It sets exertion targets based on your body, not your friend's bodies, not your trainer's body, not some statistical body index. Burnout is a really popular term in our society right now, and it isn't just from physical exhaustion. Stress plays a part in both your mental and physical health, and Whoop is designed to measure the impact that stress has on your day-to-day living. Go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com today, and use code WIT at checkout to save 15% today. Okay, now back to the conversation. I think that continually reminding myself that or when I have those anxious moments or those thoughts that come up, really forcing myself to question like, is this my reality? Like, could this, is this a hundred percent true? Or is this something that you are just trying to cover up or, you know what I mean? Or uh, not be open to, or like what is underneath this? What's interesting about my journey is that I, I really came to medication very late. So I didn't really take medication until I was in my forties. And that's very rare. So I had received all those diagnoses and really rejected medication. And I tried everything. I mean, practiced yoga for 20 years and I meditated and I felt my inner body with Eckhart Tolle. (laughs) I like Chinese herbs that tasted like death. You know, I mean, it was just unbelievable what I tried and, and none of it worked for me. And one thing I found when researching the book especially about meditation is that it, it, it can have adverse effects for people. And it always did for me. It made me more anxious and more depressed. And a Stanford study found that that's true. And I only say that because I always thought something was wrong with me that it didn't work. And, and it's, there's really nothing, you know, at all wrong with you. If, if one of these kind of tools that we give people doesn't work. Right. Um, But I love also what you were saying about like, is this true? You know, are my thoughts really true? And for me, I do believe I'm someone with a, I don't like the word fragile, but I'm someone with a very sensitive mind. And because I've experienced certain things, I can't, I can't like question myself too much (laughs) because I'll start to go down a hole, like a rabbit hole. And so, but one thing just reminding me, I love that you, you ask yourself that and on a post-it in front of me that I have all over my house is nothing has gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. just, that is my, like what I live by right now. Like, it, cause it feels like everything is wrong. And, and all I've done is, you know, gone to open my email, you know, nothing has gone wrong yet. Right. I know that's the thing is really like from the beginning, setting yourself up for, I think that makes sense. Like nothing has gone wrong, like setting yourself up for positivity as opposed to like, just instant doom when you wake up. And I feel like I used to live like that. Like I used to live and look at my day like I didn't want to do any of it. And all of these things were things that I had been working so hard to get, but I would wake up and immediately it would just be doom. And I think kind of like retraining my mind to be like, oh my God, no, like I get to do these things and the things that I don't want to do, I don't have to do. And how do I like work around this mixed with also the medication and the therapy brought me to definitely a more peaceful place and also not comparing myself to other people's journeys. Like I think probably 
a lot of the labeling puts you in these boxes where then you're probably comparing yourself to other people all the time. And that is the ultimate stunting. How has that kind of filtered into your life? Yes. I mean, I, I hear everything you're saying and I echo it. And what's interesting to me is none of that has gone away. I still have crippling yeah. anxiety. I still have terrible yeah. depression. So just yeah. so everyone knows. And of course, before, you still have those moments. You're just maybe able to work through them as opposed to them becoming like how you exist each and every second. Exactly. And, and yeah. overtaking me. And so it's yes. funny that you talk about comparing. I mean, that is the dead end of all dead ends. And it's so that, easy exactly. to go there. And I actually mm-hmm. just was doing it this weekend, as a matter of oh. fact. And it's, yeah. you know, it's just fascinating. Like, why, why do we do that? And I always wonder in terms of evolutionary psychiatry. And again, it's that danger. That person's better than you. You're not going to yep. be part of the clan. You're not going to get the food you need. I mean, this is really yep. how our brain functions. And it's yep. ironic because we, you know, we're lucky in that most of us do not live in eminent danger. I shouldn't say most, mm-hmm. but at least mm-hmm. I don't live in eminent danger every day. And I'm very mm-hmm. fortunate to do that. And so I have mm-hmm. to just, you know, as you said, relate to my brain and know, okay, you're just on hyper alert right now. And, and it's a- exactly. And how have you, when you have those moments of comparing yourself to others, I got pregnant with Sunny and had a really horrible pregnancy, was just extremely depressed and then depressed afterwards and had a very, very difficult time. And since Sunny have then had multiple miscarriages and have gone through, uh, have frozen embryos and literally was about to have an embryo transfer last week and got so sick to the point where I was throwing up so much where I like enraged my esophagus and couldn't eat for two weeks and then was too unhealthy to then go through with the transfer. And then, so I'm like getting a lump in my throat. And then that weekend had this like total breakthrough moment of like, I don't think I can be pregnant. Like I'm like literally so scared and it's, it has crippled me and crippled me for the past three years where I think like we're now possibly going down the, the surrogacy road, but in the first a few moments of thinking about surrogacy and thinking about the pros and cons. And as I was talking to my psychiatrist, actually, about it three days ago, thinking about like, what are you what what are the negatives? And one of them was this fear of what other people think, even though it would free me from depression and fear and anxiety and all these things that I've associated with pregnancy in the first few years of motherhood. All I can do is kind of think about what other people are going to think and how I'm going to be less of a mom or whatever. And I'm and I'm that's this whole conversation is just bringing up like making choices for yourself that are founded only on the I don't know. I'm I'm making this more complicated than it has to be. But like putting your mental health before anything else, it feels it, it, it feels like not like it's not enough, you know, like someone would have to literally tell me that I could not have children in order for surrogacy to be okay. But because it's my mental health that's 
maybe hindering me from it. Like it's not enough. Like that's, so that's, I'm like fully in that spiral at the moment. (laughs) So sorry, first of all. And I so hear you. I mean, for me, you know, going back to the, the broken bone analogy of mental illness, I mean, I was in crisis and, and almost died and almost ended my life. And I'm so grateful that I didn't now, but I kind of liken it to, I broke every bone in my body. That's pretty much what I recovered from. And so because of that, you know, someone who broke every bone in their body may not go bungee jumping and may not go skiing. So there are certain things I don't do and they are Mm -hmm. for my mental health, but it's been really, really hard to look at things that are somewhat undesirable traits. Like I am fine by myself and with my cat. Like I am absolutely, (laughs) that is, I am crazy cat lady. Like I'm the one putting up the the videos, you know, I mean, it's so uncool and unfashionable and all of it. And that's been, that's been really hard because that before, if I was sick or if, you know, then I had kind of an excuse. I don't want to say an excuse, but I had a, a reason maybe. And now it's just because of my mental health. Like I just want to stay healthy. And so I don't do drugs and I don't drink and I don't drink caffeine and, you know, all these things that are just really about, you know, as you said, putting my mental health first. And I wouldn't be well if I didn't do that. I mean, I know that. Mm -hmm. So the alternative is so much worse, but, you know, going to your situation, I think the other thing that I noticed was when I was very, very ill, I, I, my sense of humor just disappeared. I had no, yeah. I could not laugh at anything. And then I could uh-huh. not see the humor in it. And just going to your situation. And although this is very different, a very good friend of mine, she actually, her eggs weren't viable. So they got someone uh-huh. else's eggs, but she carried the uh-huh. baby to term. So mm-hmm. the baby is her husband's, but it's not her eggs. And so mm-hmm. the baby looks nothing like her. And she said, people look at her all the time and say, oh, it's such a beautiful baby. And she thinks, thank you. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. You know, and yeah. it just has this yeah. great kind of, you know, way of looking. Now it was, it took years for her to do that. And it, it still is, you know, but again, just trying to remember like all the gifts that I have. And one yeah. thing I love, someone told me, and this can be a platitude and I don't mean it like that. Sometimes being grateful, I either felt that it was like being forced on me or it was fake in some way. Mm -hmm. But now I see that actually, if you just say thank you about something, even in your own mind, you mm -hmm. actually can't be angry, sad or anything in that same moment. Like you actually, Mm -hmm. you're so right. You're (laughs) so right. I was talking to my mom about this very thing. And she was like, you know, of course it's natural to feel these things, but I want to always remind you to bring yourself back to like what a gift this possibly could be. Mm. And I think that, you know, we're not going to stop ourselves from having these thoughts or judgments about ourselves or feeling these feelings, but to bring it back to that, to the gratitude as like, cliche as that sounds to bring it back to like what you are able to have is really so powerful. And it's why people say it all the time. So I'm, I'm totally with you on that. And sometimes um, what I used to do is I would use it against myself gratitude. So uh-huh, it's like, you should be grateful uh-huh. for this. Look at all you have. Right. But instead- right. Right. And like, and then you would judge yourself. My, my, yeah. I would do this too. And then I would judge myself for having all that. And then for even having those feelings. And right. then I become this guilt stricken person. <laughs> right. right. And right. so now what I, what I try to do is, yeah, I'm jealous of that person because she has X or whatever. 
And Uh I'm so lucky that I have this strange cat that I love so much, you know, or just whatever it is, like the smallest Mm -hmm. thing that I'm grateful for, like, you know, and, 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 you know, there's a lot of ands in my life that didn't used to be there before. Totally, totally. Like I am a really messy person and I've tried to pretend that I'm not, but, (laughs) and I am this, this, and this, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like, it's being okay with all of those things and not allowing those things to just completely define us. And I think that's like the biggest message for you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is such, such an awesome conversation. I'm so appreciative, like I said, to have you on. And I think it's so powerful what you're doing. And I'm excited to hear about your next book because that sounds super interesting, but where can everyone listening, find your book, Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses, and just hear more about you and get involved in the movement. Yes. So, um, sarahfay.org, S-A-R-A-H-F-A-Y.org. And you can get on my mailing list. So you'll hear about the next book and this book and anything else. And you can find Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses on Amazon and IndieBound if you prefer to support your local independent bookstore and everywhere else, Barnes and Noble. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you loved this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I'd love to hear what you think and anything more or even less you'd want to hear about. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, you can find me on Instagram at Whitney E. Port, my website, WhitneyPort.com, and my YouTube channel, Whitney Port. Peace in the streets.